Hi everyone, this is Liz Carey and you're listening to Small Towns Big Stories. This is the second episode of uh, my brand new podcast and if you were around at the last one you know that I am um, a 20 plus year veteran reporter um, and I now am a freelance writer working from home um, with clients across the country and uh, just published my book, Hidden Histories of Anderson County. And when I was meeting people around uh, Anderson County, I realized that um, everybody has a story that may not have made the history books, but is interesting nonetheless. I was talking to my cousin last night, uh, Jill, who's in Kansas City, and she said, oh my God, you're just like Charles Kuralt. And I thought, oh, yeah. I guess people have done this before me. But um, at any rate, I uh, decided that I would start uh, this podcast to tell these stories of um, small towns across the country that um, have really big, big stories to tell, but that may not make it into the history books. Last time we talked about... um, Brown's raid on Anderson, South Carolina, and how um, during the Civil War, um, General Stoneman's troops and General Simeon Brown's troops um, came into South Carolina at the uh, end of the Civil War as Sherman's troops were marching um, across the South and um, sort of tore up the town, but uh, were thwarted by the promise of a a little bit of booze. But this week we're going to switch gears and go back to my hometown of Versailles, Kentucky. Um, Versailles is located a little bit uh, southwest, I think, of Lexington, Kentucky. It is home to some gorgeous, gorgeous um, horse farms and rolling hills and um, farmland, you know, it's just gorgeous. It's, uh, of course, I'm in love with it because it's my hometown and, and where I grew up. But when I was growing up, um, my sister w- worked for the Woodford County Visitors and Convention Bureau and had a little office in um, uh, Versailles. And I was, um, I was visiting her one day while she was there with her daughter Um, and I noticed this little sign that said, um, home of Jack Jewett. And I never really knew who Jack Jewett was, but it sort of always stuck in my head, you know, why in the world would we have a sign that says, for sales, Kentucky, home of Jack Jewett? Because I'd never heard of him. I mean, you know, it, it was like, who in the world is this? Turns out, Jack Jewett is kind of considered the Paul Revere of the South. But when you really, really, really look into the story, you kind of get the feeling that Paul Revere should be the Jack Jewett of the North. And that's what we're going to talk about today on Small Towns Big Stories in just a second. So, who is Jack Jewett? Well, Jack Jewett was uh, born in Virginia into a military family 
And um, he was a big part of the revolution. In fact, if Jewett hadn't taken his ride, the Revolutionary War may have taken a much different path. So, uh, yeah, so what does that have to do with my hometown? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, But first you should know a little bit about my hometown. I grew up in a little place called Versailles, Kentucky. Like I said, Versailles is known for its horses and for its rolling hills and all that, but it's also hometown of um, a former Kentucky governor and baseball commissioner, A.B. Happy Chandler who came right after, he was the second baseball commissioner, and came right after Kennesaw Mountain Landis. And I only say that because I really like the name Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Anyway, um, Chandler was the baseball commissioner who approved Jackie Robinson's contract, which effectively integrated baseball. And then later, as Kentucky governor, uh, Chandler not only established the University of Kentucky Medical Center, which is important to me because it's where my dad worked, um, but um, he also integrated Kentucky's schools. He went so far as the night that they were being integrated, um, sending 500 National Guard troops into Clay City, Kentucky, and another 300, I think, into Union County, Kentucky, um, to make sure that the schools were integrated peacefully which turned into a three-week-long strike, which is, you know, obviously a story for a different time and a different day. But anyway, I just think it's kind of interesting that baseball was integrated before schools were, you know? Um, Anyway, so um, Versailles, uh, you should know, is spelled just like the palace in France. But, like Versailles, Ohio, and Versailles, Indiana, we don't say Versailles. We say Versailles because we're from America. Um, Versailles has a population of about 9,700 people. And um, it's just about as picturesque as you could possibly imagine. Uh, It has a cute little downtown that, roughly speaking, I think is uh, six blocks long. Um, the county, Woodford County, um, uh, Versailles is the county seat of Woodford County, um, and Woodford County has uh, more or less about 26,000 people. Most of them work in Lexington or Frankfurt. Um, but, you know, it's still, a, it's still a great place. It's not like a bedroom community because there's enough people that work actually in um, Versailles and Nonsuch and Midway and stuff like that that it's not all going out to some of the places. But it is a really small town. So, you know, when I was a kid, I swear to God, my friend um, Claire and I, we would, uh, we were in all over that town. Um, we would... Uh, we would get ice cream sundaes at Corner Drug at the lunch counter there, and then we would go up the street and go to the five and ten and um, look at all of the comic books, and all of the teen magazines and all of the Fangoria magazines. You know, which we never bought, but we always looked at the monsters because you know that's what you did. And um, just I remember running all over the town. If you're coming from Lexington into Versailles, Versailles Road comes all the way through the middle of Versailles, and it dead ends right there at the county or the the the, the courthouse square. 
So there's this big courthouse, and behind it there's a sort of U-shape, so it makes a, a, a square. The courthouse is in the middle. The road goes around it. There's a bank. There's the police office. Uh, there's the jail. There's a couple other offices. I can't remember what they are. Um, there's the First Sales United Methodist Church, which is where the church that I grew up in and um, where I got married in. Uh, around the corner, there's the um, First Sales United Methodist Church, sort of community center, family center, whatever. And then there's another bank. Now, if you go from from where it does, you know, from where it stops and dead ends, if you go to the right. Um, up that street is the library, which I spent an inordinate amount of time in as a child. And um, right next to that used to be the hardware store. And I remember uh, going in there with my dad. And, um, you know, I can remember that smell, you know, the hardware store smell. And I know that sounds kind of weird. It's not like the new hardware stores, like the, you know... Ace is the place kind of hardware store smell, although that has its own sort of particular smell. But this one was much older, and it was the old hardware store smell with the wood and the the um, seeds and the, you know, all of the hardware kind of things that you had. And I remember that it had vents in the floor and that the floors were made of wood, so they creaked when you walked across them. And I remember that they had these amazing pedal cars and that for the longest 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 time I wanted one of those pedal cars so bad I just would tell dad every time that we were there that they were the coolest thing on the face of the planet <laughs> yes he did actually get me one but anyway um so uh Versailles Road comes in dead ends if you go to the left as opposed to going to the right if you go to the left um there's the Woodford Sun which is the weekly newspaper that came out in Woodford County. And um, it's where I had my first job when I was 12 years old, and I was uh, folding those newspaper inserts and put it, that you put into uh, newspapers. And, uh, um, and then across the street from that was this bakery. I don't even remember the name of the bakery. All I know it was had that it, I had my favorite cookies in them, and they were like this sort of sugary gingerbread men kind of thing with red sparkly sugar on top of it, and I just thought that they were the best cookies on the face of the planet. I don't know if they're still there now. I know that close to there is now like a Pizza Hut, and then down the street is something else. And I do know that, you know, on the road coming into Versailles, um, before you hit that dead end right there on the right, before you get there... Um, there was a movie theater that is now, I think, like the Department of Health. And then beside that, there was Wilson's Pool Hall. And Wilson's Pool Hall was men only. And uh, I remember seeing women standing outside of the pool hall because Wilson's had the best hamburgers in town. So women would go there to get the hamburgers and would wait outside to get them because the women weren't allowed in the pool hall. That's how small town it was. But, um, you know, so, uh, I guess, you know, the best thing, the way to, to describe it is, um, on Saturdays, <clears throat> Dad would grab me and he would put me into the car and, um, we would go to Rainbow Cool and Oil. 
No, um, that's the gas station, service station, coal place. It was more than just, you know, gas stations where propane was. They had everything. It was like a mini hub for uh, our community. And it was owned by um, my sister's now husband's family. Um, And every Saturday, so Dad and I would go in there and Dad get his gas and Dad would get the car worked on and he would shoot the breeze with all of the guys there and he'd be yucking it up and stuff like that. And I got to get my big red soda or my Yoo-Hoo and then one piece of candy, which normally was a Zagnut bar because that was my dad and my favorite. And so while dad was talking, um, I'd be like exploring through the whole store, you know, the whole, I would be in the garage, I'd be looking at the tires, I'd be looking all around everything, and I'd be making up all these stories in my head as to, you know, why cars were there, what happened to them, and what the bad guys did and and why the bad guys had, you know, done this to this car and what the people who owned the car were going to do, you know, just gonna, I was I was like channeling my inner uh Nancy Drew and Trixie Belden who at that time were my absolute heroes. And uh and I would make up these, you know, huge stories in my head. Um yeah, so, you know, that's something I totally still do cuz some things never change. Um, but I don't act it out. I just sit there and stare at people, you know, whatever. Um, but then dad and I would uh, go from there to the barber shop, and, um, I was allowed to go from the barber shop to the convenience store next door and get a comic book so that I could sit and read while dad was getting his crew cut that he had had since he was 18 years old. Um, and then after that, we'd go to... Woodford County Memorial Hospital. Um, Dad was an emergency room physician and an anesthesiologist, and he worked with the University of Kentucky and at uh, Woodford Memorial. But when we went there on Saturdays, uh, we would go around the back of the building and up the stairs to the second floor to the phlebotomy lab. And that's where Dad would draw his own blood because he had contracted um, hepatitis from um, a patient because of a dirty needle back in the 60s. And, um, you know, that's back before we had purple gloves and all the, you know, disposable needles and all that sort of stuff. At any rate, um, when we got home, it was time for yard work and relaxing and working in Dad's garden and... You know, our house backed up to this horse farm. Still does. My mom's house is still there. It's still gorgeous. Um, So, I mean, it was just beautiful views and and as spacious as you could ever possibly want to be in a suburban community. Um, And my friends and I... I mean, this is, you know, totally 1970s childhood. My friends and I would all get together. I think probably after lunch, we would get together... And we would play all day. I mean, you know, during the day it was tennis and kickball and uh, all sorts of other stuff. And then during the night it was ghost in the graveyard. And we were gone until, I mean, I was gone. I don't know what they did after I left. But I was gone until Mom turned on the lights on the outside of the house. And then on days when it was rainy, we would all get into my mom's basement and we would do... um, 
<laughs> we would do we would make up skits to um the old Snoopy song. Hang on, Snoopy, hang on. <laughs> At any rate. Um, so like I said, my sister my mom was a kindergarten teacher, my dad was a doctor, like I said, and my sister was the head of the Visitors Convention Bureau and her office was in the Historical Society. She had been a radio newscaster and then when she got married had her uh, first child, my lovely niece Amanda. She um took on this job because they let her take Amanda into the office with her. And, you know, Claire and I would be, you know, riding bikes and going to swim practice and doing all this other stuff. And every once in a while, I would stop by and, you know, when she, Kathy was on the phone or whatever, I would walk through the building. And um, that's when I noticed the sign that said, Jack Jewett House, and had an arrow. And like I said, you know, I was a kid. I didn't, and it was the, a kid in the 70s, so there was no internet, you know. You had to go to the library and actually look things up. And uh, it just seemed like way too much work for me because, you know, when I was in the library, I was there with all of my friends and we were, you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons or um, hanging out or, you know, reading books. And, you know, go figure. Um, so I just, it just sort of, um, skipped my mind. You know, I just didn't even think about it anymore. Um, and of course, when I got into college, I was you know, more interested in other things. But then I, I remember after college, and I can't remember if it was before or after I had little Mason, my oldest. I think it was before. Um, we came back and we were driving through for sales, and I came back to visit mom, and we were driving through for sales, and I saw that sign again. And by this time, we had the internet. So I went back to the, you know, to, to my house in Cincinnati, and I um, looked up Jack Jewett. And I was just amazed. I'm like, I cannot believe why people do not know more about this guy and why someone wrote a poem about frickin' Paul Revere when Jack Jewett was really way much more interesting and heroic. So, um, essentially, Jack Jewett changed the course of the American Revolution. Okay, maybe he didn't um, change it as much as kept the fight for independence from going off the rails, but he definitely had an impact on the outcome of the Revolutionary War. Uh, Jewish was a cap and uh, Jewett was a captain in the 16th Regiment of the Virginia Militia. Uh, both he and his father, John Senior, had signed the Albemarle Declaration, um, and this was a, a declaration signed by all 202 men in Albemarle County, Virginia, in 1779. And one of those that was included in this list was Thomas Jefferson. Um, but this uh, declaration is where they pledged their allegiance not to the crown, but to the colonies, and to uh, and then to basically renounced King George. Um, uh, so Jewett was this six foot four guy, two hundred twenty pounds, and um, was uh, you know he was said to be strikingly good looking. Um, 
in, you know, I don't know what people looked like back in the 1770s. You know, there's drawings and stuff like that, but I personally think that most artists make their subject look as good as possible. But think about this. I mean, in, 17, in, the, in the late 1700s, the average size of, of a white male in America was 5'8 and 150 pounds. This guy's got six inches and 70 pounds on them. I mean, he had to be at least a little bit intimidating. Um, I've not been able to find any pictures of him, just a silhouette. And, you know, the silhouette looks kind of handsome, but then again, you know, I think that the silhouette of my kids that I got from Disney World um, looks you know, just adorable, so uh, what do I know? <clears throat> um... So, okay, let's back up just a little bit and do a little history lesson. You know the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776, right? Well, the Revolutionary War started in 1775 and went on for seven years, ending in 1781 in the U.S. and 1783 on the continent and in India. There was a lot more to it than just, you know, the American Revolutionary War. India was revolting as well. But um, the American protests against the King of England really started in 1765, and they continued to grow until they hit this fever pitch in 73 with the Boston Tea Party. Um, and England was just not too happy about that, and they started putting all these punitive measures onto the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which of course is what Massachusetts was before it became a state. <coughs> Excuse me. And of course, you know, Massachusetts resto- responded by putting in this uh, sort of shadow government and wrestling control for, of the government away from um the King of England. So, after that, the states formed the Continental Congress, and within three years, the colonies in England were in a full-blown war. So, let forward to Jack Jewett's time. 1779, he and his dad signed the Albemarle Declaration. In 1781, the British came up with a strategy that was called the Southern Strategy. And essentially, they were going to go through the South as a way to win the war. General Cornwallis um, had a captured revolutionary, and the revolutionary guy said that um, then Governor, Virginia Governor Thomas Jefferson and all of the Virginia legislators had moved out of fear of being, you know, struck or captured or whatever, from Richmond, Virginia, to Charlottesville, Virginia. And um, Charlottesville is where near where Monticello is. So Cornwallis ordered a lieutenant colonel Banestre Tarleton, I just like that first name, Banestre um, Tarleton, um, and to take a unit and go to Charlottesville and to capture Jefferson and his legislature. So on June 3rd, Tarleton and about 250 of his men set off on horseback from uh, 
North Anna River, Virginia, to Charleston. And it's about a 70-mile ride. Remember, this is by horseback. There's no cars, there's no trains, there's no planes. This is horseback. It's long, it's hard, it's difficult. Um, and Tarleton decided that he and his men were going to make that ride in 24 hours so that they could capture the Virginia legislature and Thomas Jefferson. That same night, and, you know, when you read history, sometimes you just come across questions and you're like, what the heck? Um, And I've never been able to figure this out in all the things that I've read about it, but that same night, for some reason that I have never been able to find, um, Jack Jewett was asleep on the lawn of Cuckoo Tavern in Louisa, Virginia. And this is Thomas Jefferson's tavern. And I guess it's, from what I can tell, it's like right around 9 o'clock at night. And I'm thinking, okay, it's dark outside. What, did he just get drunk and fall asleep? But, I, you know, I mean, what do I know? At any rate, um, according to all the legends and stuff like that, because he was lying on the ground, he could hear Tarleton and his men coming up the road from far away because of the hoof um, pounds onto the, the ground. So, Jewett got it in his head that Tarleton and his men were handed to Charlottesville and were going to grab the legislature and Jefferson. Now, at that time, there wasn't a lot of militia in Virginia, mostly because there wasn't a lot of war or fighting in Virginia. Um closest thing was like a French regiment and they knew that they wouldn't be able to get back in time. So Jewett says, okay, um, there's not a lot of protection here for the legislators. And, um, if they come and get them, then we're done for. So he gets on his horse and he decides to ride to Charlottesville. Now think about that. It's the dead of night. It's like 10 o'clock when he leaves, he's on his horse Tarleton and his men are on the main road, the um, um, Charlottesville Road. And uh, Jewett can't be on that road because, you know, he doesn't know where they are and he doesn't want them to see him. So he's like, you know, riding around on horseback on backcountry roads and, you know, through horse trails and stuff like that with nothing but the moonlight to guide him. And, you know, probably a pretty extensive knowledge of the area. Um, so he rides through the night and here, you know, he, he, he gets to Monticello very early in the morning. It's like four, four thirty in the morning. And, um, he rides up the hill to Monticello to talk to Jefferson. If you've never been there, um, Monticello sits up on top of a hill in um, 
the upper and western part of Virginia, uh, not far from the Shenandoah Valley and the Monongahela National Forest. Um, and from the house, you can see forever. I mean, you just stand out on the lawn and you can just see everywhere. Um, I remember when my mom and dad took us as kids, that it's just beautiful. I mean, it's gorgeous. There's the grounds, there's the gardens, there's the house, there's, you know, all the mechanical inventions that Jefferson created. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful, spectacular place. And and you can tell, you know, in that time when people were riding horses, that that's where you wanted to be. You wanted to be above everything so that you could look out and see if anybody was coming towards you. So, <clears throat> excuse me, so uh, Jewett arrives at Monticello early in the morning. We're talking about like 5 o'clock in the morning, 4.30, 5 o'clock. And he's hours ahead of the British. And his hope was that he was going to give Jefferson time to escape. But um, for some reason, Jefferson decided... Uh, that he'd just take his good sweet time getting away. And, I, I, I mean, I guess, you know, things did move a little bit slower back then. And that it's not something that we would be, you know, used to in terms of, um, you know, everything now is immediate gratification. But <clears throat> he, um, you know... He had breakfast with a few legislators that were up from the town of Charlottesville, um, and then he went around and was started gathering up all of his papers in preparation to leave. It's not until two hours later that another guy comes up and says, look, this British invasion of Charlottesville is imminent. Two hours later. Essentially, it takes Jefferson more time to flee for his life than it does a normal woman to get ready for a date. Um, but anyway, he, he hears that, you know, the, the British are imminent, so he sends his friend, his family off to a friend's house that's about 15 miles away, and he, um, goes and gathers up more of his papers, and he's thinking, you know, he might have to take a, make a quick getaway, so he puts a saddled horse in his backyard just ready for him to hop on and, and run. And, uh, you know, I don't know, dilly-dallying, I, I don't know what I would call it, but he's uh, still putting his papers together when he goes out and his, you know, looks out of his front lawn, and the British are almost to the grounds of um, Monticello before he realizes <laughs> it may be time to leave. Um, so he hops on the horse and just barely escapes with his life, and um, runs uh, uh, away to Charlottesville to, to relative safety. And um, somehow, even after, you know, a leisurely breakfast with legislators and um, uh, frittering away his time putting together his papers, he manages to uh, squander a two- or three-hour lead and barely get out by the skin of his teeth. So while Jefferson is frittering away all this time, Jewett 
is riding down the hill and into Charlottesville. And um, he ends up at Swan Tavern. Now, this is a tavern that's owned by his father. And um, it's where most of the legislators are staying as they've, you know, run away from Richmond. And uh, they're all there getting ready to convene the next session of the legislature. Now, remember, Jefferson's um, uh, term as governor had expired on June 2nd. And then he needed to find a new one. Here comes Jewett into the middle of all of this and says, you know, hey, you know, the British are coming, the British are coming. Um, so the men decide that they're going to leave Charlottesville and they're going to reconvene in Staunton, which is um, some 35 miles to the west on June 7th. <clears throat> Now, all but about seven of them escape, and that's completely due to the fact that Jewett was there hours ahead of time to get them out. But also at the tavern was um, a General Edward Stevens, and Stevens reported directly to General George Washington, who was renowned for his military activity. He was um, very big in the, the Virginia military. And he ended up being wounded in the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. So he was there at Swan Tavern recovering from his wounds um, and trying to, you know, get back onto the battlefield. But um, Jewett knew that we ha they had to get rid of him and rescue him as well. So since he's wounded, Jewett helps him onto his horse and... Um, decides he's going to ride with Stevens as far as he can to get him as far away from the British as possible. But um, Stevens has been injured in the thigh. Now, if you've ever ridden horses at all, even, you know, pack mules into the Grand Canyon or whatever, you know that you you, you have to use your legs. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's impossible to ride without using your legs. Um, and that makes this, this injury into the thigh makes Stephen's progress really slow. So Jewett decides that the two of the men are going to split up to confuse the British. The thing about it was Stephen's, this decorated military general, tended to dress rather shabbily. He did not, you know, dress in that ostentatious, grandiose style of all those pictures that you see uh, in, in, in museums about um, what people looked like in the 1700s. He was, you know, pretty, pretty mundane. On the other hand, Jewett was wearing, you know, a red top coat and a hat with a plume in it, and, which, of course, begs the question, what kind of condition could they have been in if he was sleeping on the lawn out front of a tavern? At any rate, you know, that's just one of those other questions that you probably will never get the answer to. But, um, so when he takes off on his horse, he's in this bright red jacket and, um, he looks like a general. So naturally the British all take off after him. 
um, and none of them follow Stephen's. So Jewett is able to lead them away from Stephen's. He's able to run through the hills and, and mountains that he knows and escape and um, basically protects both of them from capture by uh, the British. What happens next, you know, June 7th comes around, the legislature convenes in Staunton, and um, they all praise Jewett for, you know, his great deeds in, in saving them, as well as, you know, saving the revolution. And um, they promise him um, two pistols and a sword. Uh, and to let, you know to to kind of get an idea of how poor the colonies were at the time, um, he got the two pistols. But it wasn't until after he had left the state, some twenty years later, the actual actually got the sword that they had promised to him. Now by this time, seventeen eighty three, um, fast forward two years, seventeen eighty three, he moves to Kentucky. Kentucky's been established as a state, or is in the process of being established as a state. Actually, it's a commonwealth, not a state, but, you know, that's for um, people to, uh, better than me to debate. At any rate, um, he, uh, he gets the, he, he leaves and he goes to Kentucky. And um, first he lands in Mercer County, Kentucky, where he meets and marries Sally Robard, and um, becomes friends with a couple of, you know, insignificant people like um, Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States, and um, Henry Clay, who anybody in Kentucky can tell you was a great orator and a um, Kentucky congressman, a congressman for Kentucky. Um, and um, Jewett becomes a Kentucky state legislator. Uh, he and Sally had 12 kids, um, and then they moved to Woodford County in 1797. Um, one of his kids was uh, Matthew Harris Jewett, who was uh, became a famous painter. And it was said that Jewett had said of Matthew, <clears throat> I sent Matthew to college to make a gentleman of him. And he has turned out to be nothing but a damn painter. <laughs> but anyway, um, so Jewett's house still sits in Woodford County. It's off of uh, Craig's Creek Road, which is off McCallum's Ferry Road, which is the road that I take to get to my sister's house. And not that that matters to anybody else, but it matters to me. Um, so, you know, context, y'all. Um, that's just the way it is. I, it, it's important to me because... It all wraps around back to my sister. So, I'm sure you're sitting there thinking, why is this important? Okay, so, Jewett's ride wasn't any big battle. And it wasn't any, you know, huge conflict, but it did, um, it did warn the Virginia legislature, which was, you know, pretty much the seat 
of the revolution, um, it warned them that the British were coming. It allowed them to get away. Um, if the British had captured Jefferson, wouldn't that have made a difference? You know, a lot of historians have said, yeah, it would have made a difference. There's a bunch of historians who said, no, it wouldn't have, because, you know, he'd already written the Declaration of Independence. He'd already done the things that he was known for. He had already served his term as um, governor of Virginia. So they may have captured him, but would that have been a big deal? It's not like they would have assassinated him or anything, I don't think. Um... But it may have dealt a blow to the Revolutionary War and extended the time of the Revolutionary War. It may have been sort of, you know, there's those turning points um, that could have changed the course of the Revolutionary War. But more than that, I mean, think about it. Here's this guy riding through the wilderness by the light of the moon, 40 miles on horseback. That's at least 12, 15 hours. Um, just to warn people, you know, the British are coming for you, you better be prepared. I, you know, I mean, how many of us would drive 20 miles to tell somebody, hey, listen, there's some people out for you. I, I don't know that any of us would drive that far. So it was... It was an arduous journey, to say the least, and it was um, it was one that did have an impact on the Revolutionary War. But you know, that begs the question: Why did Paul Revere get all the glory? I mean, here's you know, big huge poem about Paul Revere. Two of by sea, one of by sea, two of by land, whatever, one of by land, two of by sea. I can't even remember anymore. Um, why did this guy, who just basically ran through the town, get all the uh, accolades? And basically, it really all goes back to Longfellow. So, um, Henry Wordsworth Longfellow wasn't just a poet. Um, Longfellow was an abolitionist. And while Longfellow wrote poems about the evils of slavery, he was also an activist to end slavery as an institution. And we're talking in the 1800s. It's like 1858. Um, anyway, uh, Longfellow was on a trip to Boston, and he came to the old North, North Church and saw the story of Paul Revere. At this point, he was inspired. And you know how it goes. Listen, my friends, and you will hear the min of the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, blah, 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 blah. I think I had to memorize that when I was in grade school. Um, I was going to look it up, but I got lazy, and I said, you know, what the heck? Everybody knows um, one if by land, two if by sea, and he rides through the town, and, you know, everybody's woken up to figure out that the British are coming. So... Okay, I'm old and my brain is too filled up with recipes for blueberry scones um, and directions to my favorite Gold Star Chili restaurant in Cincinnati, um, the one right across from Tri-County Town Mall, to remember um, the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. Anywho, so Longfellow wrote that poem in the mid-1800s. It's almost a hundred years after the fact. 
And he wrote it not as like some ode to Paul Revere and his struggles, but he wrote it as a wake-up call to all of his northern compatriots to tell them if they wanted to get rid of slavery, they had to remember that they were the ones that did something in the Revolutionary War, and that there was, you know, they could participate, and they needed to get up off of their, you know, heinies and uh, do something. It was um, it was intended as less of a history lesson and more as a call to fellow abolitionists to rise up. <clears throat> and Paul's ride, while it was one of many during the Revolutionary War, um, there was a lot of them. It wasn't just Paul was not the only one that did it. You know, there's Paul, there's Jack, there's about four other guys and um, uh, one woman, as I remember, who did these kind of rides to warn people about the British are coming. Um, but, you know, most everybody but Paul has sort of fallen off the radar into the annals of history. Um, it wasn't that they were any more or any less important, that they were any more or less uh, impactful to the war effort. Basically, Paul just had better PR. Um, and a century later, you know, Longfellow writes this poem and it becomes part of the national landscape. Um, so it's not really... Paul Revere's ride isn't really about Paul. We all think that it is, but it was never about Paul in the first place. And the real hero of the war, or one of the real heroes you know, of these rides, may have been Jack Jewett. So Jewett, um, after... A while, um, he moved to Bath County, and he died uh, in Bath County, Kentucky, and died at his daughter's estate, which is where he's buried. Um, Paul Revere, via Longfellow, went to on to become the bane of grade school children across America, and Longfellow went on to become one of America's great poets. You know, one has to wonder what would have happened if he'd chosen to go to Monticello instead of to Boston and the Old North Church. Because I think if he had, we'd definitely be singing about the midnight ride of Jack Jewett instead of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. So, at any rate, that's my story for today. Um, the story of Versailles, Kentucky's hidden historical figure, Jack Jewett, and how he saved the revolution, and of Paul Revere, the Jack Jewett of the North. Thanks for joining me, and um, please let me know what you think. Um, hit me up here, hit me up on Facebook at Liz Carey, Writer, or on Twitter at LizardSC, um, or even, you know, shoot me an email at LizCarey at Charter.net. I really look forward to uh, talking to you again, and uh, I hope you'll join me next time here on Small Towns, Big Stories. I'm Liz Carey. Make history, y'all.